Hello, dear patrons, we're back. Uh, you're going to hear now the second half of Philip's interview with Richard Sakwa. There's lots of fascinating stuff in there, which we will then unpick and discuss at the end of it in our after party. And what's been so disastrous since uh, 1989 in this post-Cold War world is that a certain group of states have claimed to be effectively the substitute for the international system. And uh, this is a catastrophic substitution, a usurpation even, you may say. The so-called rules-based order claims to speak for all of humanity with a democracy. Those values are very fine, but uh, they, you know, each state, each country must find their own destiny. So turning on that question, indeed, turning to the question of um, Putin's Russia, I wondered what you made of his recent statements, because they seem to me to be more kind of incoherent and personally conceited um, for a leader who otherwise seems to have been generally far more um, methodical in terms of the what they publicly say about their outlook and their views. And I'm Thinking here, for instance, of the 2007 speech of the Munich Security Conference, how carefully constructed that was compared to more recent statements, say, the essay on the historical unity of the Russians and the Ukrainians, or even more recently, him styling himself in the mold of Peter the Great in a recent um, st- statement or speech he gave, I think. That, that was the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum speech. Right. Yeah. So... Um, I wonder if you mean if what you make of uh, what you make of these more recent kind of claims and if they are um, if they indicate a change in his outlook or perhaps a decline in his, um, I suppose, uh, strategic acuity. Yes, Putin has changed. Uh, and uh, w- w- coming back to an earlier question at the moment, Putin is, uh, I think, his was thinking of his legacy. And the sense was that ultimately Ukraine came became an obsession, a dangerous obsession. Uh, and uh, the Historical Unity, a pay, an, an article which came out in the National Interest last in July 2021, uh, was uh, a sign of this. A lot of it is more or less sensible analysis, but some of it is quite off beam uh, and historically contested, though it, it, you know, it, it was uh, reviewed and so it wasn't entirely fallacious. What was more difficult was his speech on the 21st of February this year, just before the war, which was rambling and emotional. And it was, I've never seen him so emotional. And then his uh, war speech on the 24th of, of February was also. But he is an emotional man, very emotional. I mean, he usually keeps his emotions under profound control, but occasionally he, he lets let's loose. Uh, and those both are speeches. As for losing acuity, no. These uh, later speeches, a St. Petersburg one uh, last week, um, where he talked about, you know, Peter the Great didn't gain anything. He was just returning, talking about the lands around like Ladoga were always Slavic uh, and so on from the Swedes. So, uh, you know, and even at the Valdai session last October, he was, you know, clearly um, shaken, um, paranoid about the pandemic and COVID, catching COVID and so the insulation, and that of course had effects because he doesn't have access to uh, the internet. I mean, he has, in- of course, he has it, but he doesn't use the internet or social media or alternative sources of information, and so he's ended up in a rather like a place where Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev ended towards the end of his time as leader of the Soviet Union in the eighteen uh, in nineteen. 19- 
1991, where he was being fed information by the KGB then, uh, which was quite false about plotting and enemies and so on. So there is a paranoid element in Putin, which has become more exaggerated since 2012 and even more in uh, since 2019. And just important on this is that I've been arguing that in 2018-2019, there was a major... Uh, shift in elite alignment within Russia and the so-called Suloviki, the hardliners, the security guys won. And that was a decision was taken to squash the opposition entirely. Uh, and Navalny's poisoning in August 2020 was uh, the leading opposition. Uh, Alexei Navalny was poisoned in August. And, you know, many, many other things, impossibly in preparation for this war. So that goes to exactly the next question. It leads nicely into it. You're known in the academic scholarship for your thesis of the dual state in Russia. And I wondered if you could briefly summarize this thesis for our listeners, but then also consider how far it stands up in light of recent events. Is there still, would you say, a dual state or is it effectively with the victory of the hardliners as one collapsed into the other? Yeah, the dual state... uh wouldn't it wouldn't even if it has done it would be a way of analyzing what has happened the dual state basically it touches on some of the analysis of Ernst Frankl and others uh, in Germany in the 1930s is to say a dual system of law where you have a constitutional state with political parties elections um, you know even elements of rule of law and on the other side you have this administrative system prerogative state which stands above it yet uh, the Russian one was actually building on a Soviet one because you had the similar element, a party state standing above rule of law. But even in the late Soviet Union, you genuinely had uh, courts, which obviously were not independent, but were able to have independent judgments in non-political cases. So normalization of life. And you saw that massively extended in post-communist Russia. And you also had uh, this constant tension. The point about a dual state model, this administrative system versus the constitutional state, is that it gives you a sense of tension and balance within it. Uh, and we know that there are many people were fighting for an expansion of the rule of law uh, of the constitutional state. And of course, when Dmitry Medvedev was acting president effectively from 2008 to 2012, it, when Putin could no longer stand because the constitution said only two consecutive terms. So you had Medvedev. And that was a huge outburst of democratic aspirations. So at that point, it was absolutely clear that this tension was there and the battle was on and so on. Gradually, since 2012, the, the limit, the, the, the free flow of constitutional rights as expressed in the Constitution of 1993. Uh, and don't forget, this administrative system got its legitimacy by being rooted in this constitutional state. If it was just a simple military dictatorship or regime such that it wouldn't matter, it wouldn't be a dual state anymore. Yes, and you're absolutely right. And uh, since 2018, 2019, there has been a sharp erosion of the uh, independence relative, you know, it's been diminished uh, over the years of those constitutional elements, including uh, more and more arbitrary actions and indeed possibly even assassinations and all the rest. So can we still talk about uh, there being a dual state? Um, well, I mean, the constitutional reform of 2020 undermined it even further because it, it was making changing the constitution to solve a political question, which was the Putin coming to the end of his two constitutionally allowed terms in 2024. So it was a, a coup de main, which uh, I think undermined constitutionalism in its entirety. So uh, it is vestigial at the moment, the yeah. dual state. Um, so I suppose... Uh, 
two inter interlinked questions. Um, firstly, what constraints are there on Putin's leadership? And uh, given where we're at at the moment, what comes after Putin in terms of post-Putin succession? Mm. All leaders who stay in power for too long become not just, as, Ed, as Acton would say, corrupted, but uh, become more, uh, get a sense of their own um, invulnerability and, uh, you know, what was the word I just had into the tongue of, uh, they are infallibility, yes, they sense of infallibility. Because what was interesting about the decision uh, to uh, invade Ukraine was how few were in the elite were consulted. And more than that, this is why I was one of the people saying it probably won't happen. There was no preparation, ideological softening up of the nation, and even more so of the elite. They didn't expect it. So, um, and obviously, you understand for planning reasons, possibly it had to be kept secret. You understand that, a la guerre, comme à la guerre, as they say. But um, yeah, so uh, Putin, but there is no substantive threat to Putin today unless the war goes very badly, which is unlikely. So, I mean, it may not go exceptionally well, but, it, you know, it'll grind on. Um, and uh, so Putin, in my view, uh, you know, there's much talk of him being ill and all the rest. I've seen no substantive signs of it. But of course, he is a mere mortal. He's 69 years old, coming into his 70s. So clearly, you know, we're all uh, uh, limited. But if nothing changes, and there's no sign of there's any substantive change. I anticipate that Putin will come back in 2024. So West should be prepared for a long time. That, that Russia will be where it is, and the world will become the the this Iron Curtain won't just divide Europe; it will divide the world, if you like, the global South versus the global Northwest. And are there constraints on Putin? You mentioned, I mean, the kind of the narrowness with which the decision was made. Are there constraints on Putin's leadership, given the kind of um, collapse of the dual state, as you say? Mm. Yes. Putin's major achievement in the past was to balance all the mega factions, you know, the liberals versus the Siloviki versus the um, the traditionalists. We're talking about a communist party, which is a sort of nationalist uh, religious body and the Eurasianists who are very keen on Russia being a very separate civilization. He balanced them all. They were all got something out of the system, but none could dominate it. Now, when that balance has gone and he's now effectively in hock to the um, security services and the military. But of course, he isn't even, because even within the Siloviki, there's endless conflict, so they should never be seen as monolithic. Yes, Russian leadership is intensely constrained. And the other big uh, constituency, of course, are, are governors, the regional element, Russia, with its 85 regions today. And we can see it, basically, Chechnya has been outside of Russian constitutional order uh, all the way since the end of the Second uh, Chechen War in the early 2000s. And of course, Ramzan Kadyrov, the leader of Chechnya, has been very active in fighting in Ukraine, interestingly enough. Okay. So that is an interesting uh, turnout. So uh, there's huge constraints in our country. And, Russia, and uh, uh, this is why Putin has been an effective leader. He's always been able to balance all these forces. And you know, for, for many people have commented for last few years, he's exhausted of it. That's why he's focusing on foreign policy. The belief that as his final major act as leader, he had to solve the Ukrainian security question. And so this is why he launched the war. 
So as you're drawing to the end of your formal academic career, I want to prompt you, um, kind of looking back as a Russia and a former as a Russia expert and former Sovietologist, and also from the vantage point of the contemporary conflict, in as much as it might have revealed things that before were obscure, would you say there are any calls that you got wrong or things you think you missed that turned out to be much more important than you anticipated? Mm. I mean, I've been afflicted throughout my life by an unhealthy optimism, <laughs> the belief that ultimately, even though I've always been exceptionally pessimistic, so what I got wrong was the belief that with the end of the Cold War, there was a possibility of transforming Europe and that we, as an about European Union and all the way to Vladivostok, could create a new political community. That really was a sense that uh, we could do it uh, one way or another. And, uh, you know, even though I've been warning about its opposite, I still retain belief in the ability to do so. And, of course, we've stumbled from one crisis. We've had uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union at the moment of its peak perfection in political terms, because the Soviet Union from 1989 was no longer communist. Effectively, it had the most free and fair elections, an extraordinarily vigorous uh, civil society, I don't like the term particularly, but, you know, the public sphere, debate, and so on. I was part of that. And, you know, the enormous sense of enthusiasm unleashed by those reforms. And I believe that in Russia today, there is that same huge democratic potential. I mean, democratic potential for... But what I fear is that those demons of revolution, of violence, and of... Uh, will be unleashed again. And that's in, that's why, in a sense, conservatives would say, OK, we stick with Putin because the alternatives will not be, in the first instance, a formalised constitutional democracy. I, that's why I insisted on this dual state, that the, all the implements, all the, effect, the instruments and organisations of a constitutional democracy, rule of law, are there. So we don't need a revolution. We need an evolution to strengthen the constitutional state, push back the arbitrariness, the authoritarianism, and indeed those social interests which have undermined it. Whether, whether it happens or not, uh, maybe it won't happen in our generation, as Lenin said just before uh, the 1917 revolution, I bequeath this um, to the new generation. Of course, within weeks, uh, the, uh, all, every, the, literally all hell broke loose um, in St. Petersburg in uh, February, March 2019-17. I hope it doesn't happen again. Um, so it's an it's an interesting uh, an interesting note to close that section off on. I wanted to finish, move to the final section and talk about the disintegration of the USSR and its long-term consequences. So uh, you write biographies of um, both uh, Gorbachev, the late, the last Soviet prime premier, as well as Vladimir Putin. And of the two leaders, who would you say has done more for Russia? Mm. Well, I, I've always been very sympathetic to Gorbachev, which uh, maybe is, uh, has got me a lot of flack, as you can imagine. I've been sympathetic because his, uh, his you know, the, the strategic direction was absolutely the right one. Unfortunately, he was, you know, what, we would, what would have been ideal, um, because he was a very poor political leader. I mean, he drove the wave of the 
for years gerontocratic leadership before him, uh, when he came to power in 1985, he tapped into a huge well of reserve. And we're talking about not just popular, but also elites. Even the military and security services says things have to change to fight against the corruption, the stagnation. Um, on the other side, you because um, Gorbachev was a child of the 60s, a Shestisiatnik, he still believed that socialism could work. And so I very much admire that. But his model of reform communism, you know, drawing on Czechoslovak socialism with a human face, and indeed yo-yo communism, by the way, very uh, explicitly uh, of how these things should work. Uh, but Putin is the, was a child of the 1970s cynical. He never believed in the communist values. It was always the state values. He was a statist, a nationalist, if you like. Uh, so, I, I, but of course, so he's a, he's a ma magnificent political leader, but he lacks the vision, which Gorbachev had. So if only we'd had some sort of uh, a Pogachev or a Gutin, uh, some sort of combination of the two, because one is too, too much of a technocrat, a manipulator, an administrator without the ability to stick to the genuine democratic vision. And by democracy, I'm talking about social, all sorts of ways, including visions of social justice and all the rest. Putin has elements of that, of course, uh, just as uh, Gorbachev was a, was a great intriguer in many ways, but uh, a combination. So who is the greatest? Well, history doesn't know the conditional tense. And so uh, they were what they were and they are what they are. But Again, I think they're both contributed. They're part of the you know, chapters, very important chapters in Russian history. And neither of them are as bad as sometimes portrayed. So both of them were Russian, Soviet in the first instance, uh, patriots and Putiners. And uh, he has, you know, if, you know, many people would say, we all said this, if he'd resigned a year ago, okay, he wouldn't be particularly popular in the West, yet you know, history would probably have judged him, you know, a great leader, not just for staying in power for over two decades, but the stability he's given. I mean, do you go to Moscow, Petersburg, Tambov, Ivanova, imagine Ivanova, a city in the 1990s, the textile city, which was decaying. I mean, I went there, you saw just, to, you know, uh, everybody drunkenness, the pavements broken, the whole thing. Now you go there, it's a gleaming modern city. Pavements mended, trees planted, flower pots there, and clean. And effectively, you know, maybe not this, not recycle. Lots to be done, but still, the abs Russia transformed. You know, still relatively poor, still vast poverty. The poverty level lower than the United States, by the way, but uh, until there's sanctions. So it's all of that was there to his achievement. Well, of course, in the end, it will be this war on which it will be judged, and you know, there again, we, we simply can't tell. So you were um, you mentioned Gorbachev's reforms, and I wanted to just, um, I suppose, pick your brains a little on that. Um, do you so? Do you think that the Gorbachev option of uh, Soviet reform was possible, or was it always doomed from the start by one factor or another? And had Gorbachev succeeded, uh, would that have left the old USSR as a kind of as what we have today in China, for instance, a more dynamic? version with the communist party still in charge mm. that's it so uh, it's a catch-22 so if it had succeeded it would end up still in what you could call 
No, probably you wouldn't. But the Leninist trap, that is that you have a rather mechanical relationship between a leadership, a vanguard party uh, and, and society, which is where China still is. So Gorbachev found a way out of the trap, but destroyed the society in which the trap was, whereas the Chinese remain trapped in it. I mean, the way I see it conceptually, Gorbachev reformed communism, believed that you could reform communism in a democratic and maintain it while dismantling the instruments of leadership, the Communist Party ideological apparatus. The Chinese, of course, have what I call the communism of reform. They put the Communist Party at the top of it. Is Was there some way of reconciling these two models of escaping the Leninist trap, one by not destroying the state itself, the Russian, the Soviet way, or by not just simply perpetuating a you know, system which delivers huge public goods, but ultimately uh, remains, um, you know, stifles some of the, you know, the aspirations to, you know, greater individual freedoms and so on uh, in China today, uh, which is quite clearly many under Hua Guafeng and some of the earlier leaders uh, uh, until 2012, um, they'd been given expression quite clearly. Uh, and even Hu Yintao uh, allowed some greater leader before uh, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, you know, some greater liberalism, I mean, in a relative terms. So, I mean, it, it's a question, of course, which precisely we need to analyze and that Xi Jinping deci has decided exactly as Putin has done, that in conditions of confrontation with the West, they can, and since you cannot deal with the West, since they've got such a vision of exceptional exceptionality, they can't you know, accept that they're just simply one player amongst others. And so this unipolar st striving maintained. So you have to clamp down internally, prepare for a long struggle, hence a Cold War analogy. Uh, that's where we are today. So it's, it's a very, very tragic dead end we've got to. It didn't need to go this way after the end of the Cold War. But I suppose then that feeds us back. Can the United States change and accept its subordination? to the international system, which it itself created in 1945, the UN-based, um, you know, you know, as we know, the United States has always had an ambivalent relationship to the UN, using it when it can dominate, and of course ignores it when it uh, wants to get on with invading Iraq and doing other things, which uh, are not constrained. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the declaration of Putin and Xi Jinping, the 4th of February this year, just before the war, the joint declaration was a fundamental historical document in which they endlessly appealed to that 1945 system, multipolarity uh, and so on. So the lines of this new conflict are between uh, this vision, which I said Mexico and India and Indonesia and so on buy into, and the exceptionalism of uh, the political West with the US at its head. And so this is the battle lines today. So another uh, another question stemming from the decline of the or the falling apart of the USSR and very straightforward. Should Ukraine have given up its nukes? So John Mearsheimer, the realist professor at Chicago, famously said it should not have in order to preserve its independence. Um, what do you think? Kissinger also said that. I think no, uh, that it would be insane, that we would really be able to have kept nuclear. Uh, don't forget that that one of the conditions for Ukrainian independence was those declarations all the way back from Bielowieszczepuszcza that 
all of these weapons would be held under what was called, what became Commonwealth of Independent States. They even appointed a fellow called Marshal Shaposhnikov. Uh, and that was absolutely explicit. This nuclear issue was not something new. Then, of course, don't forget in uh, May uh, 1992, just after independence, Ukraine accepted that it would join in its independence condition, would be as a non-nuclear state. So in a sense, it's posing the question wrong. If it had wanted to keep its nukes, it would not be independent right from the start. Or there would have been a war earlier. So, I mean, as a Kyrgyzstan of another Russian elite says, you know, this war has been 30 years in the making. So all it would have done is, you know, unleash this power. Of course, don't forget, Ukraine never had nuclear weapons. It had Soviet weapons stationed on its territory. Of yeah, course, that's indeed. To, to build control mechanisms, sure, but uh, they didn't actually have nuclear weapons. So my my understanding of it, and um, I'm sure you can correct me if I'm wrong or if it's um, one-sided, but that it, the decision, the key decision was drawn in the US, that the US was, there were two, two schools of thought in US foreign policy at the end of the Cold War. One was that they could live with, um, that it might even be great, there might be greater stability if you had Soviet missiles in the successor states dispersed among the successor states, or that it would be easier if they were all concentrated under Moscow's control. And it was, I think, James Baker who wanted them all concentrated under Moscow's control, and it was his vision that won out. So, I mean, was that the most important factor in this question, aside from um, Russia and Ukraine's competing views of independence in that period? Sure. The United States was absolutely unequivocal that uh, nuclear weapons would go to the continuous state, the legal continuous state, which is Russia, a member of the permanent uh, permanent member of the Europe, UN Security Council. So it wasn't just the US, it was a Russian view, absolutely unequivocal. That also, by the way, don't forget that these this argument also applies to this day. And so uh, they argue that uh, more states, the better, the merrier with nuclear states, which, of course, uh, seems to me a rather bizarre logic. Yes, as long as deterrence works. But the more you spread it, of course, I mean, these are classic debates. Uh, um, but uh, the more you spread it, then, you know, you, you're diminishing the risk, which I, I, I can't buy into that argument. I don't I don't for the early post-Soviet years and I don't buy it now. It's interesting um, on that question. So I went to a final question, um, which again ties with the end of the Soviet Union, and it's to do with declinism. Um, so declinism has become kind of, it's a very um, powerful intellectual and political current in contemporary discourse. And you've said you buy into it as well, in effect, um, that this the new Cold War will be decaying societies in the West versus more dynamic societies in Russia, not only Russia and China, but in places like Mexico, Indonesia, and so on, like you've said. Um, so this, obviously, it's a moment in which these concerns are being you know, they've been given, they're being discussed given the difficulty of Western states in adapting to their relative decline in the global economy. Um, and I remember also, I mean, it's a comparison which is um, which is stuck in my mind quite a bit. The Bulgarian political scientist, Stephen Krastev, is one among many who compared the difficulties of the Eurozone to the dying days of the Soviet Union. So uh, this is a more kind of open-ended intellectual question, I suppose, rather than, uh, you know, uh, rather than a uh, question as to what you think might happen but do you think if that the the entropy um of the dying days of the soviet union does it offer us any insight or parallels that might help frame our understanding of 
Western or global political systems today? I mean, you mentioned being struck by the um, the decay, the social decay of uh, Ivanova when you were there in the in the 1990s. So does so late late Soviet entropy, does it give us any insights into social and political decay in a general sense? Yes, uh, I, I think it does. Um, clearly, the um, Soviet Union was a state socialist system, uh, and you should never underestimate the ability of capitalism and, if you like, constitutional democracies to reinvent themselves. Uh, and what we are, though, seeing is the end of a 40-year cycle of neoliberalism. Well, we are, there's a lot of discussion about the end of this uh, cycle, which you yourself have contributed to that debate, uh, where uh, that we're, we're on the cusp of somewhere else. Then, of course, but so you know, there's a, we are at the a particular intellectual conceptual phase, and indeed a phase of materiality of, of type of capitalism state. Uh, Forty years from Reagan Thatcher is now clearly exhausted. What this what comes next? is not clear. And so this is why a lot of people use that Gramscian term of an interregnum between something and something else. But the tragedy of our times is that we can't really see what comes next, other than what you've suggested, more decline in the United States, for example, polarization. And yes, all sorts of symptoms which are Soviet-like in the bitter contestation, the inability, you know, deeply entrenched elites who absolutely refuse to reform until it's too late. Uh, you know, culture wars obviously is one symptom. Uh, and uh, But yet, yet, United States, uh, you know, I wouldn't go into full-scale declinist mode. I mean, I think Europe Europe is in. We're in for very tough times in the next few years because, in part, because we now realise that Russia was more entwined with a global economy and the backlash effects of these sanctions will devastate, as we already seen it in energy prices, and it also will have a devastating political backlash as well because this intolerance, the piling on of sanctions, as I said, never before... Have we seen a major state collectively persecuted in this way? I mean, why block flights so that a grandmother cannot see her grandchildren and so on? I mean, that level of punitive hostility really must show something to where we are in the West politically that we could do this. We say, OK, solidarity with Ukraine. But that's not in, by keeping a grandmother away from a grandchild and families are separated and so on, is not the way you're going to achieve any good for anyone. So uh, is there anything we've, uh, is there anything that we've missed out, Richard, do you think? In our, it's been a very wide ranging discussion, but is there anything in particular you would either to do with Ukraine or to do with more general um, points about Russian politics and history, I suppose, uh, that you would uh, want to leave with our listeners? Well, what I will say is that I think that the, you know, because I spent so much time in the late Soviet Union, is that within a palpably decaying society, a system that was clearly uh, running out of energy, there was so much dynamism and talent within it. And my feeling is, is that today as well, in the West, my we're part of it, I'm certainly part of the, of the West and Atlans, and we want to see the better. We feel that having discussions like this, but it have to be, I mean, we are fine, but the, the, the level of political discourse, which they achieved towards the end of the Soviet Union, because it was a peaceful change, unlike earlier collapses of Russian systems, it was relatively peaceful because 
a level of intellectual maturity had been gained. And my only appeal, and after years of working in the university and so on, is that we simply have to focus on civilized civil debate and discourse. And there cannot be a new McCarthyism and a new personal ad hominem attacks on individuals. And in fact, we should welcome not just ethnic and sexual diversity, but intellectual diversity. And, you know, that, in other words, that liberalism itself has become increasingly intolerant and that we must challenge that and say, no, liberalism itself may have creative power, but when it takes narrow forms, it's destroying the potential for societies. We need to have new ideas which can see how to make societies more fair, just, and with a vision, a regained vision even, of the future. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for taking the time to join us and best wishes for your retirement. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. I would strongly encourage listeners uh, to take a look at Richard's list of works um, from your internet monopoly state capitalist supplier and to keep an eye out also for Richard's op-eds in the press, which you can find more details of in the show notes. Okay, and we're back. Uh Phil, I actually thought that was fascinating, really um, the sort of geopolitical analysis you don't often get, I think. Um, and uh, I, yeah, we should have had him on sooner. I thought that was great. Well, yeah, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad you think so. And I mean, as I indicated at the beginning and have indicated previously, um, you know, for the integrity of the pod, I think it was, um, you know, I didn't want to have colleagues on from the institution where I'm currently employed. Um, but I'm glad to have the opportunity to do so now. And as it turned out, in light of Richard's imminent retirement, but also the fact that um, some of his most pessimistic prognosis were vindicated with the um, with the Ukraine war and the Russian invasion, you know, that was also a good opportunity to have him on. I also, I mean, the other advantage of having him on or the other opportunity was that it would allow me to also kind of give grist to my mill for George's Gramscianism. I wanted to know if George was like moved by the thought of being in Bologna with the Italian masses. And, yeah, um, I, that sounded good, right? Go to Emilia Romagna and and eat nice food and wave nice flags and sing nice songs. I mean, that sounds pretty good, right? You have to have a, a cold, dead heart not to be not to be moved <laughs> by that. Sing, <laughs> sing with the proletariat and dance with the bourgeois ladies. <laughs> And of course, the overlap between Gramscianism and Stalinism, though, of course, I doubt Richard. I think it's I doubt Richard would see it like that. It's rebranded, rebranded. Um, yeah. And the Euro communism thing, I think, was um, was interesting in many ways, I guess, because I suppose the we didn't really speak about the intersection between Euro communism and Brexit. Um, perhaps that's for another time. But the clearly the the aftermath of the Ukraine invasion and Richard's very pessimistic you know, his best case scenario being so pessimistic that it's effectively going to be like an armistice between and a, a territorial division of Ukraine. Um, you know, that's a defeat for his vision, his kind of uh, Euro-communist vision of um, of uh, an integrated post-Soviet, post-Cold War Europe, post-NATO Europe even. Um, though it did strike me as well that I suppose two points about the Euro-communism thing one is that the, I guess there's a way in which that Euro-communist vision 
that Gorbachev kind of laid out in Strasbourg and I suppose in conscious, I mean, this is what Richard indicated in conscious succession to de Gaulle's earlier speech in the 1970s, that vision of a Europe integrated from Shannon in the west coast of Ireland to Vladivostok in Russia's Far East. Um, that would also, I guess, intersect with a kind of Mirshamite geopolitical realism, because I imagine in the kind of the new Cold War between Russia and the West, the ideal for at least some geopolitical realists in the West would be to fold Russia into a new Western alliance, I suppose, in the aftermath of Putin. And then you would have effectively a European, Europe's Eastern frontier would be China's Western frontier. And you would have, you know, China's uh, military military forces split um, and needing yeah. to concentrate on on its Western border with with the pro-Western Russia. So yeah, I thought there was a way, you know, there's kind of an interest, there was kind of a convergence there, like I say, between the old Euro-communist vision and the Mirshamite geopolitical vision. Whether or not it actually comes to pass is another thing. But just before you come in, Alex, another point I wanted to make about Euro-communism was also the thing that struck me about it was the that with Gorbachev's speech about this integrated Europe, that was also this the kind of the continuity with Stalinism throughout the Soviet period is also evident there, because so much of um, Stalinism was seeking a peaceful accommodation with the West, you know, kind of it was always, um, its predilection was always for stability, um, order and the opportunity for peaceful for peaceful development without kind of geopolitical interference from the outside and to be integrated into a Western-led capitalist order. And, you know, paradoxically, the only way that could have, the only way that was offered or achieved was with the uh, extinguishing of the Soviet Union itself. And now it seems, you know, now it seems that is off the table. I guess I could have asked Richard whether or not the only way to realize that vision is with Russia as a supplicant partner rather than as some kind of um you know quasi equal in that arrangement um, and i guess maybe that's the core of the conflict the fact that the russians refuse to accept this kind of secondary status and that they require some form of at least symbolically equal partnership which even that the americans aren't willing to grant yeah and as he, as richard said that's off the table for a generation at least so um and i mean maybe if there were regime change in russia again the question mark over what would provoke that uh, as things stand, that there would be a changing of the guard. But it, it, what Richard said didn't seem to suggest that there was any faction currently within Russia that would be willing to go along with that because of the lack of trust in, in the West, not just from Putin, but from, yeah, I think presumably even the more cosmopolitan, let's say, elements in Russia. Um, probably by now there's been too much water under the bridge. Um, but I think I get the, 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 this kind of broader point that this missed opportunity. And I think it's worth, I think it was really interesting what you did in the interview to talk about kind of roads not taken. Um, the missed opportunity from a, you know, geopolitical realist standpoint from the US, from NATO, from the Western Alliance to not somehow incorporate Russia, which was uh, an open goal, you know, in the period up till around 2002. And it is amazing that the, if you, especially if what Richard says is true, that Ukraine was always likely to provoke a conflict, not that Ukraine itself was provoke a conflict, but that there would be conflict over Ukraine, that that was inevitable. 
then it makes it an even bigger missed opportunity from the part of Western strat- strategists to not have brought, brought Russia in, maybe even made Russia an ally against China, rising China or whatever it might be. Again, that's not the kind of perspective that I would adopt, but you just, from a realist perspective, you think that would have been you know, far better than what we have now. Yeah, I mean, just a slightly, I guess, a slightly different implication of of the interview as a, as a whole. And one of the bits that I really liked, but that was was quite depressing, maybe um, or sobering at least, was the, I guess, the analysis of of why certain aspects of Russian um, escalation dominance could uh, could could mean that we, you know, there's a very good case to be made that we're closer to, to nuclear war than at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's something which um, I, you know, wasn't alive at that point in time, but talking to people who who were, like, the, the feeling, I guess it's, it's, a, it's strange because you would say on the one hand, maybe this is what a Cold War uh, feels like to be, you know, to be involved slash a spectator. Um, but what we talked about right at the beginning before the interview started about the kind of the reaction um, having so many uh, continuities with neoliberal order breakdown syndrome or kind of Trump derangement syndrome uh, or Brexit derangement syndrome kind of moved on to Russia, Ukraine derangement syndrome, the the response not being um, very kind of grounded in fact, maybe makes it easy to overlook the the kind of strategic and like detailed analysis, which means that there is a very, a very serious threat uh, here of of uh, of a pretty um, catastrophic conflict. Like Russian, really uh, Western irrationality, effectively, right? I mean, that would be the argument that you're making that the, that the West didn't even necessarily pursue its best interest in its obsession with Russia, um, especially over the past decade or so. Yeah, maybe that you can't see the irrationality of the of Western ruling classes because the irrationality of Western PMCs is so um, all eclipsing in their in their response to, uh, to to Russia. I mean, I think there's a few elements to write to him. It speaks to the, I mean, it's stuff which I've you know we've spoken about on the podcast myself with respect to um the book that i published in 2020 cosmopolitan dystopia about the way in which the west was propelled rather than enjoying the fruits of the cold war victory and kind of preserving the status quo um the us-led west was propelled into this um dramatic um you know all these recurrent crusades to democratize and liberalize the international order to an extent that was um you know unnecessary given their given their strategic position and also ultimately was um damaging to that liberal international order itself and so that is very evident in not only you know in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, but also in Ukraine now, um, with respect to um, the war, the war with Russia. I mean, one thing I think that I'm rem- always reminded of is um, a Russian friend of mine's told me that um, in their history textbooks in high school, you know, they're taught that Russia didn't didn't lose the Cold War, um, but rather chose a different system. Um, so Russia broke away from the Soviet Union, declared independence along with the other former Soviet republics, um, and so that it wasn't understood that they'd been defeated. You know, that was never really kind of historically absorbed into um, Russia's account of the end of the Cold War, in contrast to kind of the Western hubris that demanded 
um, a supplicant Russia. And so those two those two visions on actually what happened at the end of the Cold War were always going to clash. In addition to the fact that I think that the West has tremendous difficulty dealing with um, European, you know, palpably European states that are too big to, um, that are too large to kind of swallow and uh, too large to accommodate. And that also are able to um, assert their own interests that are distinct from those of Western Europe and the US. And this is something I think that partly provokes um, Putin derangement syndrome. It's the fact that there are kind of, that they have a European state that is part of Europe, but at the same time is strong enough to assert some degree of its own kind of political space and interest. And this is what is so difficult for Westerners to accept because they're used to being able to push East mm. Europeans around. They're used to Europe being a kind of, um, you know, kind of a single political unit following in their wake since the end of the Cold War. And so this is the thing that really maddens, I think, in this conflict. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the thing. The, the West buys its own bullshit in a way much more. Yeah. Uh, it's far more ideological. Um, it, it's nationalism is disguised as post-nationalism, something that we've discussed in reference to Germany, which is probably the best example of this, but it, it, it applies across uh, across Europe. Uh, being European from the French perspective is really just French interests and French domination of Europe. But again, it's uh, framed in other terms. And I guess the Russian naked pursuit of its own interests and say, hey, these are this is our sphere of, in, of influence or this is these are our narrow uh, tactical aims here is just like, whoa, hang on, you've got to dress this up. You can't you can't walk in here naked like that. You've got to you've got to come in dressed up. Um, but that I think that's what, what um, troubles me about it is that it's precisely that the in in some ways the West doesn't buy its own bullshit or isn't true at least to that element of the rules based international order which we might be a bit sneery about as so much liberal hopium, but you know as Phil you've demonstrated really well in your book and came through also in the discussion with Richard Sacqua that it's the West which has failed to even defend the minimum of a rules based international order which countries like China and India, and not to mention kind of weaker powers, are more or less signed up to. I mean, you know, the Indians might kind of try to overstep the bounds in Jammu and Kashmir, but broadly speaking, um, they want the kind of post-World War II settlement to uh, perpetuate itself. And it's the West which has most undermined it. So I guess there's this weird element of the West kind of buying its own bullshit and then also not being even true to its word. Um, I don't know if that's right. You think right it's cynical? Yeah, I mean, it is it, I guess the question is, is it is it cynical, like knowing that you're you can't be criticised for for doing this, or or is it what did you say, hopium? Yeah, or natopium or something. Not to not to go too far with that. Yeah. I was going to. I mean, I think I I do want to take issue. I suppose on this question of. Um, deglobalization, how far Russia's autarky and its integration into a new kind of um, a new non-Western G20 um, is possible. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm convinced. I mean, I think, you know, I think that we will see kind of regional fragmentation of the global economy and that's underway um, and what have you. Um, but I don't, I mean, I'm skeptical and, dis, you know, however state dependent Russia's middle class is, I imagine they'll be able to, you know, adapt to perhaps taking a blow to their consumption patterns as a result of sanctions and what have you. Um, but the idea that um, kind of Martin Jake's why, why the East will kind of rule the world um, 
I don't. I just don't buy it. Um, I still think that the you, you don't know, buy the, the deglobalization thing, or you don't buy no, Russia's not the deglobalization thing, but the idea that the future kind of lies east, and that Russia will be able to prosper by plugging itself into this dynamic kind of eastern economies or kind of southern network, which includes Indonesia, um, you know, Indonesia, Mexico, uh, China, and India, and so on. I think that is. Um, I just don't think it's. Uh, I, I mean, for a start, you know, there there's a limit to how interdependent those regions and countries can be separated from from the Western led economy, global economy. But also, I think the whole, you know, you can never escape the image of um, of America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Um, and when you had all the bombers taking off with all those poor Afghans um, clinging to the undercarriage and falling, you know, hundreds of feet. Um, I mean, there's nowhere, you know, people will never be crawling onto the undercarriage of a departing bomber in order to, you know, kind of, um, you know, live in China, to kind of flee to China. I mean, um, perhaps so, not, but perhaps not. Well, but, uh, but my point, uh, my point being, right, that there is no getting away from the fact that the, um, the resolution of our global political problems still lie in the West, right? So the image of kind of this decaying, um, fragmenting West compared to these dynamic Eastern societies, advanced Eastern societies, um, simply looking at economic growth rates isn't sufficient to give you the it's, full picture. It's a similar sort of shortcut to fully automated luxury communism to the extent that it's like, oh, we don't really need a political solution. We can just have a kind of economic one. Look at these economic um, powerhouses basically there will be you know it's fine we well it's not that it's fine but like fully the, automated luxury communism with chinese characteristics yeah yeah fully automated luxury ccp i mean it's i mean maybe i'm, I'm stretching who, it a bit who's far. making the argument as a as, for that like as a desiderata like as you know we not that the future is in asia but that the future <laughs> The, we want the future to be Asia because I think that there's two distinct things, right? It's Martin Jakes, who's um, you know, who's uh, yeah. one of these, who's a former Marxism today. So he's kind of coming out of the Eurocommunist tradition himself, and now he's chucked up in Beijing and is always going on about how you know the Chinese system is so vastly superior to Western decadence. Um, so I mean, people uh, like him would make this uh, point, uh, right? That the future yeah. lies in the East. I, I mean, I just think that just as a as a very basic you know populational and economic um question the weight of gravity will shift to the east no matter you know one way or no, the but other it has but, but, but the question right? there's no getting but the away question, from that but the question is also you know you can't answer this question without stipulating the parameters of what the time frame is right so if we're talking five years no probably not if we're talking you know 30 years then yes quite possibly um and I, and the, the, I, I take your what? point that that people that the appeal of you know jumping onto the the, the landing gear of a, of a of a jet to try to you know immigrate to China okay that's maybe not happening right now. Um, it's but, never going to happen. I mean, that's I mean, the that's point. A bold, right? That's a bold claim. I, it's now well. I mean, unless you know China becomes like a glittering kind of um, beacon of democracy and freedom, which isn't likely to happen in the next well, what if years. What if the West becomes far, far worse to the extent that China actually seems like, well, you know, preferable uh, it's option. It's not going to happen. I just don't, I mean, the West is, you know, I mean, the West is in pretty dire straits as it West is. is as, best, Alex. West as, is um, best. As, as Richard indicated, right? 
Um, and yet still, despite, you know, despite all the problems, um, you still have like in terms of mass movement, um, the kind of the pole of attraction is, is in the West. Not yeah, only I mean, for I'm... not only for kind of living standards and prosperity, but also because um, those things are associated with greater freedoms, with greater personal freedoms. There's no getting away from the fact that um, prosperity and freedom are only kind of intertwined in what the West offers at the global level. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also it's also like we can't we can't hope that China will solve our political problems by like becoming economically irresistible and then it'll be yeah. fine you know everything's solved um because i don't you know i, I tend to agree well not not, not least because of the no. geopolitical competition between them will make that impossible i mean china won't save our asses because <laughs> because western elites are, are very determined that that won't happen um there is one one final point that i wanted to bring up which is the kind of the the roads not taken thing, which I kind of touched on already. You know, could it could it have been otherwise? Um, because there's been a couple of we've discussed with Isabel Isabella Weber on this podcast about what China did to avoid shock therapy and the fate that met the USSR, both in terms of dismemberment and more specifically in terms of the massive degrowth that happened in in Russia. Um, by the way, degrowth advocates have a look at that um, to see your to see your future um, that that's what you desire. Um, but also a, a new book which is coming out, and we hopefully will have the author on soon. I, I reviewed the book recently about how the Cold War ended and why. Um, to a certain extent, the really existing socialist states of the East were doomed. Um, and what what could have been done otherwise? And I, I don't know, Phil, what your what your take is on this, um, just to conclude, having heard Richard and his take about how much possibility there was for the kind of, uh, you know, former, com- you know, community independent states to have been something different. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I can't, I think you, you know, one would require a tremendous amount of um, intimate expertise in order to be able to answer the question convincingly, and I don't really have that. I think also, I suppose, what we didn't unpick in my back and forth with Richard on this particular issue was whether or not the USSR could have been preserved as a as a single state yeah. in some kind of post post communist form. So that you would have avoided the kind of the political fragmentation, at least, um, and that it would have been, you know, whether or not that would have been better than the dissolution into separate republics. Well, I or, think indeed, or indeed view, the opposite, but the opposite, which is also worth considering, which is a sort of rump Russia, which loses its empire uh, or most of it, but it be, it retains the sort of the the more or less the state structures that it had um, and manages to perpetuate itself. Happened, right? Well, I mean, except that, that, except that you had e- economic chaos for a, basically the better part of a decade. Yes. Well, the, well, the second, I mean, that was the second part of what I was going to say. I mean, I think the it's very for all the for all the ills of shock therapy, it's very difficult to understate the sheer, um, you know, the sheer kind of entropy and dysfunction of the Soviet um, command economy. I don't, you know, if, given how bad. Uh, the transition was in the 1990s it would be hard to imagine it being any worse i mean you could say yeah, that that's for i think sure. yeah you know that i'm sure given how bad it was i'm sure there were ways it could have been done better but by the same token um it's not to underestimate just how um how deeply dysfunctional 
the Soviet system was. And, you know, to raise the question also, perhaps that the, you know, this kind of um, the autarky of the various uh, economic units within the Soviet bloc perhaps made all the political separatism inevitable as well at the end, well, at the end of the Cold War. Yeah, indeed. Okay, well, all of this, I guess, at least serves to underline kind of what unique historical times we're in. And uh, I think we were right, right from the start to say that this is the end of the end of history and to say that we're living through a period which is in some way bookends um, the post-Cold War period or even the period from the 1970s onwards, the neoliberal period. And, and Richard Sakwa's uh, take on things seem to underline that as well. So anyway, interesting time to be uh, doing a podcast. <laughs> Um, <laughs> which is my my they're, they're all shaking their heads at that conclusion that was, that was a terrible end. yeah uh anyway okay well let us know what you thought of this let us know what you thought of the interview if you want more on uh ukraine and russia um and that part of the world do let us know if you have shouts for who we should have on and we're all ears as we always are okay that's it from us for now catch you later bye-bye